something because I discovered something in there that, uh, and I didn't want to reprint these bulletins, didn't really have time. And so when we get to it, um, you'll just have it there. I think that'll be good. So welcome back, Luke. Whoop. Appreciate your service, brother, and glad to have you back in our midst. Glad to hear that. <laughs> um, so we're, I think when you left, we were still in Christology in Sunday school. Um, yeah, so, and we're actually still on the deity of Christ. Um, but now our particular focus is seeing the works of God the works that are attributed exclusively to God proper being attributed to Jesus Christ in the New Testament as a proof of his deity. So that's kind of the subsection we're in now. And today you can see the heading. Um, uh, we're looking at the work of redemption. And I have forgiveness of sin prepared, but I don't think we'll get to it. Sometimes I, it surprises me and things go quickly, but... Um, uh, in any event, this is going to be our primary focus. So, um, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help and we'll, we'll jump in. Father, we thank you for the glorious deposit of truth that's before us, um, that you have spoken and pierced the darkness with the light of your self-revelation. What an inestimable privilege it is, we confess and and we give you praise for it. We ask for your help this morning that we might uh, know you, that we might see you fully in the face of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. All right, good morning, brother. All right, so um, we're going to look at uh, uh, the works of God performed by Christ, redemption, as I said before. Um, and I thought it important that we define redemption um, because given our current uh, cultural settings I think it's often misunderstood exactly what it means um, and no greater definition that I could uh, surmise than that that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 um, because he really explains uh, uh, I wouldn't say unintentionally, but indirectly um, in making a statement concerning it, he, he really defines it for us. Good morning. Um, so remember this, uh, on your direct you to your uh, handout if you have one. If not, Larry or Tim has some. Um, and remember this, the context of this one is he uh, Paul had just told the Corinthians that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God. And so the, uh, uh, that's the basis for what he says on our page, for you were bought with a price. So that's the ideal of redemption. It has a negative connotation uh, in this sense, um, that there was some ill treatment or some... Uh, um, wrong action on your part that caused you to be in a position to need redemption. Think the, the prime example, Hosea's wife. 
right? Where she just continually was unfaithful to the covenant of marriage and she would eventually end up being sold into slavery and, and be destitute. And Hosea, in, in prophetic imagery, would go and redeem her. He would ransom her. He would pay the price to get her out of her bondage. Um, and that's, that's the imagery here when Paul says, you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Meaning what? You're his, right? <laughs> so if, you're, if he's redeemed you, if he's, if he's ransomed you, now you belong to him. Um, and then look in your, uh, I asked you to turn there. Well, hello, good morning. I might have not printed enough papers, but we'll work through it. Okay, thanks. Come in, come in, come in, come in. Come on, come on. Lots of disappointed people this morning. <laughs> All right, guys that are just coming in. Um, our, I'll try to be succinct here. Our broader theme is Christology. Our more narrowed theme is the deity of Christ. Um, that he is fully God, he's divine nature, um, and we're seeing proofs of that now in this section by looking at the works of God uh, that are performed by Christ. And today we're discussing redemption, um, and we've just sought to define it um, in the first couple of verses there. Uh, for you were bought with a price, redemption connotes the idea of of a purchase from a bad situation or from a, a particularly like a, a, the ideal of slavery or bondage or something where your liberty is gone, uh, you're in some sort of destitution, form of destitution. And then I'd ask people to turn to 1 Corinthians 7 because I wanted to read the previous verse. Um, we can just read it out loud. You don't have to turn there. But... Um, this is really good. Verse 22, he says in, in defining, for he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, in other words, if you were a slave, he's, now he's not speaking metaphorically here, he's saying if you were an actual slave when you were called to the Lord, meaning when you came to faith, um, I've lost my place, th that person is the Lord's freedman. Okay, you see that. So even though they're still a slave in a in a political social sense, they're the Lord. They're free in the Lord. But likewise, he who was free when called is the slave, the bondservant of Christ. You see that. So you're freed. See, trying to define the the concept of redemption, you're freed from your bondage when you're redeemed. But you're not freed to, to be autonomous, right? You, you become the servant of whoever redeems you. We use the example of Hosea. When, when Hosea would redeem back Gomer, then she became his wife again. Now, she didn't get that, right? Because she was a, a picture of the rebellious house of Israel that we'll, we'll uh, read about later. But um, she was unfaithful in that. But the ideal is, 
you're, you're bought, you're redeemed to be owned by the master who purchased you. That's that redemption of a slave. And then he says, gives the therefore in verse 23 that's on your paper, you were bought with a price, so do not become the slave, the bondservant of men. So see the contrast. If the Lord's purchased you, we'll look at this a lot, you're his. You're not the slave of men. You're not to fear men. You're to be people pleasers, but to be God pleasers. Okay, so that's the idea of redemption. Now, let's uh, draw. Let me draw your attention back to your handout then uh, to Psalm 111, and we're going to see um, this theme of of uh, God uh, being the the exclusive uh, redeemer. Um, this is the theme of the entire 111th Psalm. Um, and and it's, it's particularly displayed in the verses here. It says, the works of his hands. Now, whose hands? If you remember the context, it's Yahweh, right? So the, work of, the works of God's hands, that's what, what he's talking about. The, the theme, I'm, I'm sorry, I misspoke. The theme is not redemption. The theme of the whole psalm is the works of God's hands. They're praising God. God for the works of His hands, for the things that He has done. Um, the works of His hands are faithful and just. All His precepts are trustworthy. They are established forever and ever to be performed with faithfulness and uprightness. And then look, referring to the Exodus here, He sent redemption to His people. He commanded His covenant forever. Holy and awesome is His name. Now, this kind of helps us to define it and to establish his exclusivity here. But what does it mean he sent redemption to his people? I already mentioned what event that's referring to. Most likely, the Exodus. Okay, What was the condition of the children of Israel in the, before the Exodus? Were they free? That's right. They were, they were in bondage to, to, to Egypt. Right to, to pagan, unbelieving masters. They were slaves. And in the Exodus, what does God do? See, He redeems them. Right, And He uses that language over and over and says, I called you out. I redeemed you as a people for My name. Right, So, just, just building a framework here. Look at the next psalm there. The 130th. O Israel, hope in the Lord for... With, notice, with the Lord is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption. And look, verse 8. And He will redeem Israel from what? See, now we're going beyond the geopolitical. Now we're going beyond slavery to, to uh, 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 a political nation, Egypt. What's, what's the real source of their bondage? Their iniquity, right? Their transgression to God's law. This is why over and over and over and over again we see Israel <laughs> be coming back into bondage right? to these pagan heathen nations that don't even worship God. It's why it's because of their iniquity. So see, we see both the ideal of, of uh, um, redemption being from something, from a negative consequence, and that God is the source in that. Now, remember this next one from Isaiah 40. Thank you, Tim. Appreciate that, brother. 
<laughs> it's the hardest thing in the world to com compliment to him. <laughs> Something about a camel and the eye needle. I don't know. <laughs> oh, appreciate him. His uh, heart. Um, so remember this. We've looked at this a lot in in the study of the deity of Christ from Isaiah 43. Um, this is that section that basically could be summed up that God, Yahweh, is Israel's only Savior. And he'll, if you remember, he'll go on to say that very exclusively. But look how it connects to our theme of redemption. They're almost synonymous, redemption and salvation. But, but there's some nuances in there that are important. But now, thus says whom? The Lord, all caps, meaning, right. Who, he who created you, of course we saw that the New Testament ascribes that to Jesus Christ as well. Um, o Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, why? I have redeemed you. Remember the, yeah, amen to that, brother. <laughs> yeah, uh, we're no better off uh, than they in and of ourselves. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Yahweh, right? I have called you by name, and you are whose? You're mine, right? Remember the exclusivity of that statement. In verse 11, you don't have it on there, but that's the one we've looked at a lot. He says, I'm the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Hope you can remember when we've looked at that several times. Um, uh, yeah, so... Uh, now, consider that context because it kind of builds into where we see Christ being introduced as the Redeemer of Israel um, when, we, when, it, when we enter into the New Testament there. Um, uh, Isaiah, overall, what's the condition of Israel, of the northern kingdom, in the time of Isaiah's prophecy? I mean, they're apostate. Right. And the judgment is decreed. I think they might have already been in the under the bondage of uh, who is it? Assyrians. Wasn't Babylon. That was Judah. In any event, I think they were already captive here. And so the ideal is fear not. Why? Because I'm your redeemer and I will redeem you. Spoken in the prophetic past tense, I have redeemed you. It's that certain here. Okay, just remember that. Because when we get to the New Testament, it makes us rethink it. Look at what he goes on to prophesy in, in uh, chapter 59. Now, now, this is interesting to me. I, and even though I've read over this who knows how many times, like it just slapped me in the face in studying for this. Is beautiful. Now consider what I said. What we just mentioned: Israel's fallen condition, and God says this: truth is lacking, um, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. How can we put that in cornbread? We can relate to it in our day. The man who doesn't or the person who doesn't partake in their iniquity is what he's attacked. See, there is no truth, there's no fidelity, there's no faithfulness, it's lacking. He's summarizing Israel's fallen condition at the time. And, and the one who not only just 
the one who doesn't pursue righteousness, but the one who even just departs from their iniquity, the one who doesn't take part in their pleasures, in their wickedness, he kind of falls under attack. He becomes a prey. And look, the Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. Watch. He saw, the Lord, that there was no man meaning that does justice and that could intercede for them, that there was no one to intercede. So think in the terms of the covenant, right? And when Israel had fallen under Moses' leadership and God would say, I'm going to pour out my justice and I'm going to destroy them, utterly annihilate them and make a people from you, Moses, what would Moses do? He would intercede, pray for them, right? He would intercede on their behalf as a mediator, right? And the Lord would stay his hand at Moses' intercession. Here he says, there's no one righteous, there's no one truthful, there's no one faithful in all the nation to intercede for them. There's no man, remember, a man has to intercede on behalf of men, right? This is very important. Did you hear it? it takes a son of Adam... Okay, to represent and to intercede on behalf of the descendants of Adam. Okay, and he says there is no one here. So then, what does God do? Look, then His own arm. Whose own arm? Right. Does God have an arm? It's anthropomorphism. Right. The big fancy word that just means attributing human characteristics to God. But, but. His own arm brought salvation and His righteousness upheld Him. He, He, God, put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on His head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped Himself in zeal as a cloak. So put all that together. Think of like, what is it? Ephesians 6, the armor of God, other places. You see that the imagery is is he's dressing himself for action, right? And it's spiritual action, not physical battle, which is what Israel looked for, a political deliverance. wasn't the issue. They couldn't see the forest for the trees, right? Um, God himself is girding himself for action. Why? Because what's lacking? What needs to be done? Someone needs to intercede for them. Okay, you see where this is going? I'm seeing a few slight smiles. That's good. Look what he goes on to say in verse 20. Helps us to bring it together. And a, notice it's capitalized. A Redeemer. Why would that be capitalized? It's a proper noun. It's a proper Substantival adjective, I think, <laughs> and, uh, and that uh, something like that. It stands in the place of a of, of uh, the action that's being done. So that's not right. Any event, sorry, I'm cornbread. <laughs> yeah, it's ref- yeah referring to a specific redeemer, right? And and remember, this is three verses later. And we, from what we've just looked at, that God's going to gird Himself up and come to Israel and intercede. Um, but it has to be a man, 
to intercede on behalf of men. And a redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who turn from transgression. If you've been here while we've been going through Luke 1, and uh, remember that's what John, that was his ministry of preparation to turn the hearts. Actually, we haven't gotten there yet. I've been studying it, sorry. Probably just confused you there. Um, but so Isaiah ends with, with a promise that, um, that a redeemer is going to come, that God's going to come, going to visit them in redemption. But there's that mystery of intercession. Okay, how would it work? And of course, Luke 1, um, this is uh, Zechariah, whom we have been studying in Luke 1, the father of John the Baptist. Um, the previous verse had said that he was filled with the Spirit, and then filled with the Spirit, in other words, under inspiration, he prophesied this. Now remember what had been announced. The birth of John, and then the birth of Jesus. Okay? So at the announcement, at those two announcements, Zechariah says, under inspiration... Blessed be Yahweh, God of Israel, for He has visited Yahweh, right? He has redeemed His people. Is that not the promise? Like over and it's the promise we've been looked at. He said, okay, that's come. The redemption of Israel. That's come in these angelic announcements. And look at the next verse. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Well, why would he throw that in there? Yeah, well, yeah, because they, he may not understood this fully here, but the, the, the parallel promises that worked with it was that the Lord would establish a deliverer on David's throne, right from the line of David in his in his regal line or through his regal line would come the redeemer of Israel would come the one that would, would that would rule all nations with the rod of iron right? think of all those messianic psalms um, and Zechariah said um, that's now being fulfilled in the birth of Christ um, and then the shepherds look at that's okay Yeah. And I love that God does that. He makes no mistake. It's like there's no way they can deny if they do who he is. Yeah. Because he comes through, he, he, he points out things so clearly that unmistakably that's who that is. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. All the different all the different threads of messianic expectation, yes. Yes. they all collide, or not collide in a negative sense, but they all come together in perfect harmony and unison in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Right? Yeah, it's, it's unmistakably clear if, if you fear the Lord. I mean, um, and that's where the problem isn't intellectual. It's No, it's okay. That's a good point. Good point, brother. Don't apologize. It, the problem's moral, Right? Uh, we, we don't believe because we don't want to believe. Um, so look at Luke 2. Of course, we make it very clear what, what uh, um, 
we've just stated here. This is the angelic announcement to the shepherds. It says, unto you, so that's the idea of a gift, um, is born this day in the city of David. Same thing. What? A Savior. Notice the ESV translators capitalize that too. Why would that be? How many saviors are there? Isaiah 43, right? <laughs> There's one. Who was it in Isaiah 43? Yahweh. I'm the only Savior. Here we see a Savior is born, meaning he's a man. And what can a man do on behalf of men? Intercede. You see this? Jesus, fully God, fully man, the, the Savior. And he said, and the angels made it very clear that he's the Christ, meaning he's the Messiah, and he's the Lord, meaning he's the Master. Okay, he's the sovereign. Hard to get more divine than this, folks. Uh, look at the lang- look at the same announcement to Joseph from the angels in Matthew one twenty one. There, um, speaking to Mary, his of Mary, his betrothed, she will bear. A son. See, that's flesh and blood. That's a, that's a descendant of Adam, if you will. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, and you shall call his name Jesus. And why would that be? Do you remember what Jesus means? Remember how I told you that? Say it again. God with us. No, close. Yahweh saves. Emmanuel is God with us. Yeah. yeah. Right. It's em in Hebrew is uh, just a little preposition with, right. and El is short for Elohim. But Jesus is Yahshua, yes. which Yah is short for Yahweh, and Shua for salvation. So it's Yahweh is salvation. So when you have the, yeah, so the, when his personal name is, the angel says, call him Yahshua. Why? Because he will save, but now watch. He will save whom? Whose people? His people. Right? Yahweh's people. I mean, you see that. We can't just glance over those things. And he'll save them from something. From what? Right. Now, what does redemption mean? You see that? The word's not used there. But that's the point. Like He's going to save them from their bondage to their sin and iniquity. Um, Romans 3. Check the time. Oh, we've got time up here. Whoop. That's easier. Um, now, remember this. Sorry. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we're talking about a position of being here. Remember our definition of redemption. And and Paul says all, both Jew and Greek, those born under the law, those not born under the law, are in the same condition. What? They've transgressed the moral perfections of God. They've fallen short of that, the glory of His perfections, the standard of who He is. They've fallen short. So their classification... Their legal standing is what? Trans, what is Guilty. Yeah. Transgressor. Sinner. Right? Enemy. That's their... All, our, everyone's. 
but verse 24 are justified. Now, what does that mean? We're talking about legal standing. It's, it's a legal declaration of righteousness. Okay. So it's it's the very opposite of what he just said. That <laughs> okay? all are legally guilty before God, legally transgressors, born under the law or not. Either the law condemns you or your conscience and general revelation condemns you creation. But you're all condemned because you're all transgressors. But consequently, all are who are justified. Clearly not everyone is justified. Um, context is important. All are declared righteous by his grace as a gift, meaning they don't deserve it. <laughs> okay, He gives it freely. They brought nothing to the table. The, the declaration of their righteousness comes because God is gracious and he's shown favor to them that they don't deserve. Now, look at the means. We're bringing this back around. Are justified by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption. Now watch the preposition. That is in. In whom? Christ Jesus. And in whom is redemption in the Old Testament? God alone. Okay. <laughs> These are just manifold. It's like it just drips off every page. But... Um, I like to bask in it. Look at this now, Acts 20, 28. This is Paul's charging the Ephesian elders, I think it was the Ephesian elders, upon his departure. Um, uh, and there's just there's something subtle in here that really ties in with our purposes this morning. Um, he charges them and says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for whose church? God's church. Okay, the church of God. Now watch. Which he, what's the antecedent for he? God, right? It's the proper noun right before it. Which he, God, obtained with his, who's, what's the antecedent? God on blood. Now, does God have blood? Right. So what do we do with that? Okay. Well, we do the next verse, if I remember correctly. <laughs> we understand, of course, that the blood through whom the church of God was purchased was the blood of the man Jesus, right? Who's fully divine and simultaneously fully human. Okay. Hebrews 9.12 makes it very clear for us as well as subsequent verses. He, that's Christ, remember the context, entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. Okay? What did the blood of Christ do? It secured an eternal what? Redemption. Redemption. Yes. See? Now, Acts 20, 28 again. <laughs> the church of God, which He obtained. See the ideal of redemption in that? 
He bought it. He purchased it. It's his with his own blood. Okay, Hebrews 9, Christ purchased the church with his own blood. Right? I think. Same similar thing. Ephesians 1 7. In him, you don't have the context there, but it's Christ. Um, feel free to go back and look. In him, we have redemption through his blood. Again, what does and what does that result in? The forgiveness of our trespasses. See, our trespasses are the reason for our bondage. They're the reasons why we're slaves to sin, death, and Satan. Okay, our real enemies, not the Roman Empire. Right? Sin, death, and Satan. And it's through the redemption that's 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 paid for with the blood of Christ, um, um, uh, we become his and we're forgiven of those transgressions and trespasses that we've committed um, according to not our own deservedness, but what? Ephesians 1 7. The riches of his grace. See? He says the same thing every time. <laughs> right? It's according to the grace of God. You brought nothing to the table. He's just gracious. Um, very succinct. Hard to pass up, though. Colossians 1 14. In whom? Colossians 1 is speaking about the preeminence of. Christ, right? You can flip there. It's it's uh, unmistakable. Um, uh, the whole thing is the preeminence of the Son is the actual word that Paul uses there. And it's in the Son that we have redemption, which is, yeah, it's accomplished by the forgiveness of sins. There's no more indebtedness to, to those other masters. Um, now, I messed up in my editing. Look at Revelation 7 first. Um, and then we're, we're going to finish with Titus 2.14. So I actually put it on there twice, didn't I? I just really want you to get that. Titus 2.14. <laughs> so we're going to go over it twice. Uh, uh, so look at this. I, I love to see these things in, in the Revelation. Um, because it too is all about Christ. Um, and crying out with a loud voice. Now watch. Salvation belongs to whom? To God. Isaiah 43, right? Who sits on the throne. And who else does salvation belong to? I'm like, what do you do with that? You affirm it. <laughs> right? Say, so Jesus is Yahweh. You affirm it. He's God. Um, distinct in person, but one in essential being with the Father and the Spirit. Okay. Um, now, look at our uh, double, doubly emphasized Titus 2 here. Uh, it's beautiful, I think. Who, jumping mid-sentence, but who gave himself for us, who gave himself for us, Jesus, that's the idea of substitutionary atonement. What, is, what do all those syllables mean? It means that Jesus bore the guilt of our sin upon himself. 
and he drank the cup of the wrath and vengeance of God. He satisfied the justice of God by suffering what was due to our sins, standing in our place at His righteousness that He had earned as a man, given to us as though it were our own, that substitutionary atonement. Right? That's what it when it says Christ gave himself for you, that's what that means. Every time he stands in your place. Okay. There is no Christianity without substitutionary atonement. I'm convinced. Anywho, he gave himself for us to what end? Why did he give himself for us? Why did he stand in the place of transgressors, endure the wrath of the Father? Be, be crucified in a shameful, painful, ignominious death. Be marked with sinners. Why? Toward what end? To redeem us. You see that? To buy us. To purchase us as His own. From the thing that put us there, and that's lawlessness, antinomianism, right? rebellion to God's law, disobedience, And to do what? Here's that language. To purify for whom? For himself. A people that belong to whom? Right, himself. His own possession. Right? It's the church of whom that we saw in Acts 2.20? God. Right? Israel's the people of God. You see the point? Just just synonymously here, without explanation. It's this clear in Paul's understanding that he says Christ redeemed the church, the, the true Israel of God, as a people for himself. right? For his own possession. Um who are, and remember what we saw was deficient in Isaiah 59. There is no truth. There is no justice. Right? God was going to gird Himself with zeal and vengeance and justice and righteousness. Okay? Look at the result of Christ's redemption of His people. Yeah, say it loud. They're, they're zealous for good works uh, toward obedience. Now flip back to the front. We'll end where we began. Because here's the implication of all this to you if you're a Christian. <laughs> you were bought with a price. You are not your own. You are free from your slavery to sin. You're free from your slavery to self-righteousness. You're free from your bondage to death and Satan. But you're not free to be your own person. You have an obligation. What is it? You're bought with a price, so what? Glorify God. Right? You're His. He's your Master. He's redeemed you for His own. You're a people for His own possession. Right, zealous for good works. Good works in whose service? Right, you don't have to spell it out. Right? That's the implication. And, the, and look at the other one. 
You were bought with a price. So what? Fear God, not men. Be God pleasers, not people pleasers. Amen? Do we need His grace for that? I'm not trying to be sermonic here, but <laughs> if you know me, you know I struggle with the fear of man very much. So don't want to be a hypocrite here. I'm saying this is objectively true even if I don't <laughs> live it out. <laughs> it's the truth. What are you going to say? Oh, okay. You look like you were... I'm not sure we need Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's pray. Uh, Father, we adore you for the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus, for the forgiveness of our sins. We, um, we're sorry. We've transgressed your law and your will been disobedient in so many ways um, we just thank you that you've shown us mercy that your grace has overflown uh, toward us and uh, that through the blood of Christ um, that you've redeemed us and given us the great privilege of being your holy people we praise you for that Lord we marvel at your grace and um, we pray that your spirit who's within us uh, would be at work mightily in every single one of us that, that we might um, uh, fear you, live to serve you, and not men, and um, that uh, Christ would be our chief affection and, and that we might be enabled to glorify God in our body. Um, again, we thank you. We ask you for this further grace in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.